to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Well now, after this threefold appeal which we were reading uh, last time we studied Hebrews in verses 22 to 24, you will remember we found it uh, an appeal which was directed Godward and then an appeal which was directed manward, and another which was directed uh, to our fellow believers, uh, to God, to the world, to the church, if you like. Let us draw near. That is an appeal to draw near to God in the light of the fact that he has made this new and living way into the presence of God for us. The exhortation is, let us draw near to God. The exhortation in relation to the world is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is, because of all God has done for us in Jesus, we are to stand fast confessing this hope in a world that is so full of despair, like Paul in the midst of the storm. I believe God that it shall be even as he said unto me. And in relation to one another, let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works. Let us think, be thoughtful of one another, considerate of one another, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And after that threefold appeal and exhortation, the apostle now returns to a note of warning, the fourth of the five warning passages in the epistle to the Hebrews. Now it's really very interesting and instructive from a pastoral point of view to see how in the epistle to the Hebrews there is this perfect balance in the teaching as between encouragement and exhortation on the one hand and warning on the other. He has this great note of encouragement going through the whole of the epistle, urging them to look away to Jesus, for example, in chapter 12. In chapter 11, encouraging them from the example of believers in every generation down through biblical history, and encouraging them that they might go on to know the Lord, exhorting them as he has been doing at the end of chapter 12, but also with this other note of warning. It's a very important thing for us to plead with God that we may get the same biblical balance into ministry, both public and private. The great danger is, you see, that we can never know this encouraging note. It's a terrible thing if we become only discouraging to people when there are so many believing people whose hearts are just aching for encouragement. And God means us to have a ministry of encouragement the one to the other. But encouragement is not our only ministry, you see. Sometimes it can be easier to be encouraging and heartening than it is to be warning. And in the sense that the apostle is here, severe. There is, there is a sanctifying power, you see, in encouragement. And indeed in God-centered praise, which is a very different thing in the whole wide world from flattery which is something that is despicable in the eyes of God and ought to be in the eyes of Christian people too. But there is a great difference between that and the kind of godly encouragement and praise which the apostle meets out regularly. Have you noticed his perfect pastoral balance 
in the epistles. Where he is constantly saying, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. I remember this about you and thank God for your generosity. It's all this note of encouragement, you see. But again and again, you will find the Apostle Paul has this note of discipline where that is needed. And warning where that is needed. And this, this epistle is a great example of that balanced pastoral care and concern. Now this particular warning which we come to in chapter 10 verse 26 is about willful, persistent, deliberate and conscious turning of one's back upon God. And that is the danger which the apostles saw these believers were in. It was the danger of people who were under a great deal of pressure. We've been seeing this through the epistle. And the danger was that they were inclined to be drifting away. You get that phrase twice in the epistle. The inclination that many of them had was to draw back. So he urges them, you see, draw near. Don't draw back, but draw near. But they had this tendency to be discouraged and to draw back. Now there is a sanctifying power in encouragement. But you will notice also there is a sanctifying power in the fear of God. And what he is now bringing before them is the fearsome, awesome nature of the alternative to going on. In chapter 6, do you remember? Let us go on, leaving behind the elementary things. Let us go on. Now the alternative to going on is going back. I have often said that there is no standing still really in the Christian life. I don't believe it when people say, you know, I've been stagnant. I've just been standing still for so many years. I don't think we're ever really standing still, beloved, except momentarily. I think there are two directions in which we move spiritually. One is going on into new reaches of God's grace, new realms of obedience, new realms of experience of all that he is to his own children. Or we are going back and drifting away. And because of this danger, he sees there is a sanctifying power in the ministry of encouragement and exhortation, but there is a sanctifying power in the fear of the living God. And that's why this passage ends with the phrase, it is a fearful thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. It is, I say, a warning about willful, deliberate turning of one's back upon God. The New International Version translates verse 26, if we deliberately go on sinning. Now let me first pause to identify what it is that the apostle is referring to in verse 26. You'll notice that we've been concentrating in these warning passages on what the apostle is referring to rather than who he is referring to. Usually the debate is on who is the apostle speaking to here? Can he possibly be speaking to believers when he seems to suggest this awful judgment that comes upon those who fall back, who apostatize, if you like, and turn away from God and his grace and trample the Son of God underfoot. Can it possibly be that he's speaking to believers? Well, I think all we can say, beloved, is that he is writing to Hebrew Christians. He is writing to Christians, so it will not do us any good to say, no, he is not speaking to Christians. He is speaking to people who came very near but never became Christians. Or he is speaking about a hypothetical, academic situation, and not one that refers to them. 
I never find that the apostles in the New Testament speak into the air like that. They speak to those to whom they are writing. And the whole point, I think, of the measure of vagueness that there is in our inability to understand exactly who are these people. Are they believers or are they not believers? Were they truly regenerate, these people who apostatized or were they not? The vagueness is just this, that we are intended to see the dreadful warning and take it to heart so that the sanctifying power of the fear of God may drive us to Jesus in a new way. Now, none of this, let me say, and it would be unnecessary to say it because we have emphasized it so often, none of this ever denies the perseverance of the saints to the end, the security of the believer eternally. None of that is invaded in the slightest by what he is saying here. But he is presenting to us a fearful prospect and saying to us, in other words, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let me pause then to identify what it is that he is referring to because it does seem to raise the whole question of different kinds of sin. If we sin deliberately, uh, or the NIV, if we deliberately go on sinning. It's very obvious from scripture that there are two elements in human sin. There is the element of waywardness, weakness, and ignorance, and folly. Uh, the description of the priest earlier on in Hebrews is that he is able to be considerate and compassionate towards the wayward and the ignorant. And there is an element in all human sin, uh, in one sense, of waywardness and ignorance and folly and weakness and so on. And then there is another element in sin, and this is what he is speaking about here. And that is the element, and we recognize this ourselves, of deliberate defiance and premeditated rebellion against God and against his will and his word. Now you find this in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 4, you get this reference to unwitting sin. Now unwitting sin, that is sin from ignorance, is not sin that doesn't carry guilt with it. Uh, as you know, even at the legal level, ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking the law if you come into an area and say to the policeman, but officer, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to park here. I'm a country boy and my number is an Ayrshire number and so on. He will say ignorance of the law is no excuse. You ought to have known if you didn't know. But the point about this unwitting sin in Leviticus is that there is atonement available for it. There is an atonement for this sin. You read Leviticus 4 afterwards and you will find this. But there is a distinction made between this sin, unwitting sin, and what the Old Testament calls in Numbers 15.30, sinning with a high hand. Now that's a very significant phrase because it refers to deliberate premeditated rebellion against God. Now, possibly all our sin has one or both of these elements in it. 
Some of our sin has a greater part of ignorance and waywardness than of rebellion and sinning with a high hand. But the ultimate in the sinning with a high hand is when it becomes the basic nature of our sin and the seriousness of it in the Old Testament is underlined by the fact that there is no atonement for it. Now that's what you will find in Numbers 15.30, for example. And so in the New Testament you find a distinction made both by Jesus and by Paul of sin which is marked by a spirit of ignorance. You'll remember that the apostle himself says in 1 Timothy 1.13, uh, where he speaks of how he obtained mercy he, and perse after persecuting the church of God, he says, I persecuted the church of God, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And Jesus says of those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, that is a very real element in, in New Testament teaching about sin. But we need to be a little bit more accurate than that still because willful sin is not just sinning in a way that is not deliberate. <coughs> sinning with a high hand, as the scriptures call it, is not just sinning in a way that is, is um, deliberate. One would have to say that those who crucified Christ sinned deliberately, or sinning in ignorance I'm speaking about here. Sinning in ignorance is not just sinning that in a way that is not deliberate. Those who crucified Jesus certainly deliberated in what they were doing, and yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Paul's persecution of the early church was obviously very deliberate, and deliberated too. He planned it and obtained letters in order to do it. Yet he could say, I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Willful sin appears to be a persistent attitude. We need to be very careful, I think, in defining it. It appears to be a persistent attitude of continuing in a deliberate rejection of the known will of God. If you take the theme of perseverance, of which this epistle has a great deal to say, persevering in faith, persevering in obedience, going on with God against all the pressures that are leading you to the contrary, willful sin is a diabolic form of perseverance. It is perseverance contorted to make us persevere against God so that we deliberately, consistently persevere in rebellion against him. Now the danger is in trying to identify this, this deliberate sinning as a particular sin. For example, there was a group in the third century who identified it as the sin of breaking down under persecution. And that was a very natural thing to do at that period when there was a great deal of persecution and they spoke of the sin for which there was no atonement as being this sin. But what 
the apostle is speaking of here is rather a certain condition of heart what the bible calls a hardened heart a certain attitude or spirit of utter cold defiance of God even when his word and will are clearly understood by us now that's the point clearly known to us and yet we stubbornly persist in a course of defying him I think that is what the apostle is speaking of now what he wants to do you see is to warn us against that kind of life you say but it's impossible for a Christian to get into that condition well he's not talking about something that's unreal you know he's talking about reality and look in verse 29 at the way he spells out the gravity of such a life it is basically a life which has begun to live in utter contempt of God and a contempt indeed of the whole Godhead do you notice this first of all in verse 29 he speaks of those how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who now this is spelling out the nature of this deliberate sin who has spurned the son of God more literally as I was saying in the authorized version trampled underfoot the son of God that is to do exactly what the men in Jesus parable of the vineyard did with the son when he came they scorned the Lord of the vineyard in trampling his son underfoot and this is the first constituent in this kind of life secondly it is a profaning of the blood of the covenant now you notice what he goes on to say about the blood of the covenant the blood of the covenant by which one is sanctified and here he is speaking about the sanctifying power of the blood of Jesus the blood of the covenant now you see the the very gift of Jesus blood is not only for salvation but for sanctification there is saving power in the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all our sin but there is sanctifying power in the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus which is his death has a power to change life and when we consistently rebel against God and that is the whole pattern of our life we are not only trampling underfoot the Son of God we are also profaning the blood of the covenant by which one is sanctified profaning means to treat it as a common thing as an unholy thing common which is the word that's used is the opposite of holy and this is the to view Christ's blood in the opposite way from the way Jesus himself spoke of it and it is that that we are doing when we live in consistent persevering disobedience standing defiantly against what God is saying to us and if that is the whole pattern of our life 
then this is what we are doing, trampling the Son of God underfoot, profaning the blood of the covenant. Somebody was telling me some time ago about being away from home, a friend of mine in the ministry. He'd been in a church where there was a very cynical man who had been pleased to make fun, as he thought, of some of what he called the Sunday school theology of the death of Jesus. And he quoted various hymns that referred to the blood of Jesus and held the whole idea up to ridicule and made some appalling cheap jibes at the whole concept of Jesus and his blood. And my friend said to me, I sat there and he said, I sweated and trembled because I would rather trifle with an atom bomb than trifle with that. Profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the spirit of grace is the third thing in verse 29. The spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit through whom the grace of God in Christ is applied to the human heart and touches and transforms our character. And to live in this way is to outrage, to insult, to affront the spirit of grace. Now that is the gravity of the sin of which he is speaking. And the terrible danger that he is holding up before us is the danger of our hearts becoming hard. Now, beloved, the time to watch that is when you think it's beginning to happen, when you sense it. Uh, when I was in New Mills, uh, I made bold at one time to build um, a small wall at one part of our garden, which was the size of Rookin Glen, and uh, I'm not a builder as I don't need to tell you don't have experience in these practical matters but I knew you got cement and sand and water and mixed them all together and um, I went out and my neighbor said to me you know your concrete's getting hard he said I think it's the way you've mixed it oh I said it's all right be all right I had something else to do. Somebody phoned and I went into the house to speak to them. And um, still to this day on the drive into uh, the manse, you can see an area where the concrete uh, still is. And uh, all the pickaxes in the world haven't been able to take it away yet because it hardened and I was too late, you see. I could have gone and made something of it if I'd been there in time if I'd been wise enough to take my neighbor's counsel and he an engineer into the bargain. But I didn't. The time to deal with things like that is when the situation is recoverable. Now, laying aside the question of the eternal state of such a heart, let me say to you 
that I have seen Christian people who have fallen away from God and drifted away from God and defied his will and then set themselves on a course like somebody who is deliberately setting their face as Jesus did not set his. They are setting it away from Jerusalem. And gradually the heart gets harder and the tone gets metallic and the life becomes cynical and the soul gets shriveled up and only God knows what an appalling thing it is to see somebody in that condition who has turned away from Jesus, who has drawn back. And the apostle is using such fierce language because fierce it is not because he wants to frighten but because he wants to warn which of us having a child who was in danger of being drawn away from the place of safety into the place of danger would not plead with the child and love the child and because we love them warn them God does that in his word. That's the gravity of the sin of which he's speaking. Now in verses 28 and 30 and 31, he underlines the gravity of the judgment such a life merits by comparing the judgment meted out to someone who violated or despised Moses' law. In verse 28, a man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses with the judgment meted out to someone who has committed this greater evil. How much worse punishment. He argues, you notice in verse 29, from the lesser sin to the greater, and therefore from the lesser judgment to the greater judgment, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, outraged the Spirit of grace, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now you see, even if we are crystal clear about this and say, This is the Lord's people we are dealing with. They will never be eternally lost. Blessed be God for that truth. But God will judge his people. We often use that text. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God as a text to preach to the unconverted but it really originally applied to those whom God was pleased to call his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing, writes the Bishop of Gloucester in the preface to the authorized version originally. Have you ever read the original preface to the authorized version, the preface of the translators to the reader, compiled by Miles Smith, who later became Bishop of Gloucester? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but a blessed thing it is when God speaketh to us to hearken, when he setteth his blood before us and his word before us to believe it and to read it. When he stretcheth out his hand and calleth to answer, Here am I to do thy will, O God. The Lord work a care and conscience in us to know him and to serve him. 
that we may be acknowledged of him at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with the Holy Ghost be all praise and thanksgiving. Now the point of all this warning is not to lead us into discouragement and to despair. There are never warnings in the Bible that have that in view. The great problem is, of course, is it not, that tender, sensitive souls take up warnings like this and apply them to their own hearts. How often I've had people coming to me saying, I believe I must have committed the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Ghost. And of course the person who can never have committed that sin is the person who is worried in case they have. Because they have a tender heart and conscience. They are burdened about how they stand with God. And they are the very people who never can have committed that sin. But this warning is not intended to discourage us or to lead us into despair. But to urge us on in the right way. By showing us the gravity of the alternative. Are you tempted to turn back like the children of Israel, you know, who in the midst of the wilderness when they were under pressure came to Moses and said, why have you brought us to this place? Was it not better for us in the land of Egypt? And there is a warning about the gravity of the alternative. Paul certainly kept this before his own eyes, do you remember, when he says that he longs that they might pray for him, pray for me, brethren, he says, do pray for me, that I may really go on, lest, having preached to others, I should myself become a castaway. Paul? A castaway? Well, he kept the gravity of the alternative before his eyes. Now in verses 32 to 39, the apostle follows again his earlier pattern, that you may remember from chapter 6, of following warning with encouragement. And the encouragement comes primarily from two sources. But, he begins, now in chapter 6, you had the same encouragement. We are persuaded of better things of you, brethren, he says. Here, but... Recall the former days, and so on. The encouragement comes from two things, I say. First, from the past, with reference to themselves. And second, to the, from the future, with reference to God. First, the past, with reference to themselves. Recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes sharing fellowship with those who were so treated. And he begins to speak about them. Now, Scripture urges us to recall the former days for two reasons, basically. One is to see the contrast between what we were once without Christ and what we are now in Christ. And so you find the apostle doing this in various ways, in various epistles. To the Corinthians, for example, he gives them this long list of the debauchery of the ancient world. And he says to these Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You were once like that, he said, but now you are like this. And that's a use of the past in relation to ourselves. 
Think of what once you were. Think of the way in which at one time you would have had no hunger for God's word, no desire for holiness, no sense of unsettlement with your life as it is, no dissatisfaction with yourself and your sin. Think of what you once were. That's important. Like the man I've quoted to you before who once wrote that, that beautiful little line, I may not be what I want to be, I am certainly not what I should be, nor am I what one day by God's grace I shall be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Now that's a source of great encouragement to God's people, and it is not to preen yourself, but to see the grace of God and the reality of it at work in your life. But the other way in which the past is used is to see the evidence of grace in the days since they were brought out of darkness. And that's what he is speaking about. Paul is saying, you were like this, then grace came and a new beginning. But the apostle to the Hebrews is saying, since grace touched your life, look at what has happened in your Christian past. That's your non-Christian past. Here's your Christian past. Now listen. Notice the things that he points to. After you were enlightened, that is, after you were brought out of darkness into light. And he marks down three things particularly that their lives are marked with. One, endurance. You did endure. The great need they have just now, you see, is endurance. Now he says, beloved, there were the signs and lineaments of endurance on your life in the past. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. That's endurance. You endured tribulation, suffering, abuse, affliction, sharing the sufferings of the afflicted. Now, that's a mark of grace. You know, the first time I was ever anywhere, I think, where Ian Murray of Thailand came to preach was when I was an assistant in St. David's Knightswood, and he was announced as coming to speak on the evidence of Christian grace and a call to the ministry. And I thought, now that's great. And I was, I had my notebook all out to take down all the points, and he just had one point, and it was God's word to the apostle. I will show him what great things he shall suffer for my sake. Beloved, suffering for Jesus' sake is one of the hallmarks of God's grace. I've never forgotten that. You endured, he says. Now, do you see how he is encouraging them? He is not frightened to look at their past Christian experience and to say, I saw the signs of it. Are you wondering whether God is real or not? Well, look at the past. Did he not prove himself to you there? Now, look, he says, face it. Face yourself in the past. Did God not prove himself to you then? How did you endure that? How did you manage to endure exposure to abuse and affliction, tribulation and trial? It was Jesus, he says. It was Jesus in you. You have shared the sufferings of the afflicted. Well, you have shared, become partners with those who were so treated. That is not yourself suffering but you have gone and put yourself into the place of those who were suffering. There is another mark of this grace. Look at the second one. And uh, that's compassion. 
you notice, you had compassion on the prisoners. That's a beautiful sign of grace, is it not? You had compassion. Do you ever think of that compassion? The selfless going out of their hearts to other people. He said, I saw this in you. What made you love other people like that? What made you want to pour out your heart to those who were in prison and go out to them and spend and be spent for them? It was Jesus, he said. It was Jesus in you. And then, what would you think of if you were asked to give the three marks of grace that you would encourage people by? Possibly not these, most of us, endurance, compassion, and what I've called heavenly-mindedness. Heavenly-mindedness. Look at verse 34. You had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That, you see, was a remarkable mark of, um, of these people. Joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. I always remember uh, Tom Swanston. Do you know Tom Swanston? Rona Cruikshank's patron saint. Uh, minister up in Inverness. Tom Swanston. Great man of God has been greatly used. And he was minister in Holy Town in Lanarkshire uh, for a time. And Tom Swanston had the rare distinction of having his manse burgled nine times while he was minister of Holy Town. And uh, he said he used to imagine the burglars queuing over uh, the coal fields of Lanarkshire to come into the manse of Holy Town. And uh, he phoned me up one morning, I remember, and uh, he comes from the northeast and sometimes lapses into the Murray Coast dialect, you know. And uh, he said to me, do you know what's happened? I said, you haven't had another burglary, Tom. He said, I have. The house has been ransacked, he said. But, ah, I said, it'll all be burned up in the day of judgment anyway. And I've got glorious treasure in heaven, he said. Glorious treasure in heaven. And he really meant it. You know, there is something that is uniquely of God when he gives us a detachment from things like that. So that as one saint I knew said, Help us so to live lightly to them and holy to thee, that if they were all removed tomorrow, we would scarcely notice the difference. Why? Well, because that's not where our treasure is. That doesn't mean to say we don't enjoy all the nice things God has given us. We are not queries or oddities. We love them. We love our homes. We love the blessing and comfort God has given to them and to us. And we enjoy it all to the full. Or else we're daft. We're not Christians. That's not a sign of Christian grace that you don't enjoy the blessings God has given you. But you don't live for that. That's not where your treasure is. Your treasure is someplace else altogether. Knowing that you yourselves had a better position and an abiding one where moth and rust do not corrupt nor thieves break through 
and steel. Now two things from that. That is all the clearest evidence of a real work of grace and sometimes we need that kind of encouragement. It was Jesus, he says, it was Jesus made you value the eternal world more than the world round about you. And the other thing is, the same God who saw you through these past days will see you through the future. That's what he's saying. You see, he said, how did you come through these past days? God brought you through them. And the same God who brought you through that will bring you through the future. He does not change. So, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Here is the terrible thing they were doing, you see, like men with some treasure. And because of the baubles of Egypt, they were getting ready to throw away the treasure, throwing away your confidence in God and putting their confidence somewhere else. That's what you're doing when you're turning back, he says. Oh, don't throw away the diamonds for the stones. Recall the past in relation to yourself and reckon on the future in relation to God. Verses 36 to 38. You have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one shall come and shall not tarry. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and keep their souls. You notice what it is he's saying. You have need, you have need of perseverance. It's the great word of Hebrews. I say again, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus who persevered. We have a persevering Savior who gives us the grace of perseverance but we persevere in the light of the fact that God has the future in his perfect control the tendency is we can move into a worldly way of thinking and imagine that the future is is just some piece of unknown chaos but he says yet a little while and the coming one shall come and shall not tarry so don't shrink back Live by faith, he says. Live by faith. Do you know that great redemption hymn? Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the signal back to heaven. By thy grace we will. And that's what he's saying to them. Hold the fort. Jesus is coming. History is settled. So don't shrink back. Because to shrink back is to shrink back from glory. And we are of those who have faith and keep their souls. Now the question that immediately arises is, is it feasible and practical to a faith in such circumstances as these? Well, he says, allow me to digress for a chapter. And he digresses for a chapter.
to summon witnesses from every corner of Scripture. Faith, he says, is the key to it, to the future. Believing God. Now listen to the record of men who have really believed God and found that he was true. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith, by faith. And this is the key. Not faith. But the God in whom these men believed, that's the key. And you and I have the same God. And that's why, beloved, we can go out through these doors this evening with an absolute confidence, however weak or wayward we may feel we are, however different from other people we may think are streets ahead of us spiritually, we can go out through these doors absolutely confident that we can persevere. Because God is faithful who has promised. And we live by trusting this God. Now let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank thee for thy words and for thy word and for thy counsel and for the encouragement and chastening that it gives to us. Oh, come and apply the word of life to our hearts and spirits this evening and bless us, we pray, as we go forth. Lift up the hands that hang down, confirm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a feeble heart, fear not. And grant, O Lord, that strengthened with all thy might by the Spirit in the inner man, we may set our faces steadfastly to Jerusalem and to glory. To this end, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God. <laughs>